0: Alright, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm sitting here trying to struggle with a better title than this, but that's the best I could do here at the last minute. So I kind of want to continue on what we were talking about last time. Um, understanding Jesus and specifically, you know, for, for those of us in the health profession, um, I think there's just a lot we can learn about Jesus. I tried to say last time that, you know, the life of Jesus, uh, in many ways models closer to a physician than a pastor. Um, spent so much of his time healing, and he did some preaching, of course. So I think there's a lot to learn from Jesus' life uh, for us uh, physicians, and that's kind of what we we'll are talk about here in the next little bit. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we're told that by beholding we become changed, and so as we look at uh, the life of Jesus, please help us to, uh, as accurately as possible, understand uh, what Jesus did, what he said, help that to become a part of us and to change us from within. Amen. <clears throat> okay so we have verses like this in ephesians and in many other places since you are god's dear children you must try to be like him your life must be controlled by love just as christ loved us and gave his life for us and this doesn't mean you must try to be like him in order that you can save yourself i mean this is not a works um, kind of a statement here i think there's nothing wrong with that to try to be like Jesus, okay? We must try to be like him. And uh, just the words here, your life must be controlled by love. What would that mean to have your life controlled by love as physicians? Of course, Jesus, you know, we have lots and lots of commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus here brings it down to one. I give you a new commandment, love one another. And uh, we've said before, of course, this is not a new commandment, it's just that uh, no one's done it. Okay, so the new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Okay, and so we are told here, you know, that uh, to have our life controlled by love, to try to be like Jesus, we have one commandment, love one another, and, and how do we even know what that looks like? And here's how we know what it looks like. As I have loved you, in other words, what we see in Jesus The love that Jesus revealed in his life, that's what we are to reflect to others. That's what it looks like. Okay, so, um, you know, these can be seen as rather daunting commands here. Your life must be controlled by love, love one another. And uh, this is something that I've struggled with, I would say, over the years, uh, you know, coming to admire uh, the kind of person God is and to put that into practice, you know, when you have a clinic, a busy clinic, and you've got lots and lots of patients, and lots and lots of distractions, and all the difficulty that goes along with uh, people not getting along in various departments, patient complaints, and trying to s- somehow reflect uh, Jesus. That's, uh, that's a big challenge. <clears throat> and so, um, Anyway, this is what we're going to talk about here a little bit. For for several years, I was very self-conscious, you know, having a Bible study. Whenever I had a student work with me in clinic, I somehow felt like boy, I had to do something spectacular to, uh, you know, to go along with that. And, and I think I don't have that pressure any longer. But um, anyway, we still want to try as much as possible uh, to reflect Jesus in our interaction with patients. So I've just kind of listed some problems, and probably some of you could tailor issues that you will have. Um, differently, but here's a problem. You know, we have uh, irritability and frustration in a very, very busy, um, physician life. Okay. And what do we learn from Jesus and all this? And here's, here's a, I gave, these are all real examples. This is about maybe six or seven years ago. Um, well, it must have been six years ago. And I just remember this was a Thursday. And, um, you know, I'd been on call for a week and neurology is generally not that busy with night call, but this was a really bad week. Uh, not enough sleep and I had was coming to work Thursday morning and I'm off Thursday afternoon oh, and I had the Bible study at noon just started the Bible study at that time and um, So I arrived to work and uh, This was uh, how I was greeted dr. Cole. I'm so sorry. I accidentally double booked you for the entire day We just found out about this and haven't had a chance to call any of your patients your first four patients are already in the waiting room What would you like me to do? Okay, and so you know man, that's that's not what you were at all expecting and so you have this all this pressure dumped in your lap. Um, how do you respond to situations like this that come up every week um, in a Christ-like way? Okay, so you know we don't have Jesus exactly going through precisely the kinds of things that we go through, but but try to think of some parallels here. Let's uh, maybe skip to the story here of Jesus feeding the five thousand. Okay, and so he's got lots of lots of people crowding around, you know, wanting to be healed. And there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So he said to them, they're exhausted, let us go off by ourselves to some place where we will be alone and you can rest a while. Okay, so vacations once in a while are a good thing. Okay, so they started out on a boat by themselves to a lonely place. Many people, however, saw them leave and knew at once who they were. So they went from all the towns and ran ahead by land and arrived at the place ahead of Jesus and his disciples. And when Jesus got out of the boat, he saw this large crowd, and he was irritated because he was expecting to go off and have a nice time, but of course his heart was filled with pity for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he began to teach them many things. And And I can say honestly that when I looked out into the waiting room and saw those four patients and looked at my schedule, uh, I don't think my heart at that moment was not filled with pity, so I have to say. So... Anyway, we want to, again, try to just put skin on Jesus in the 21st century. How would Jesus respond to these daily things that we go through? Well, let's continue on with this story here. We're talking about frustration and irritability uh, with things that come up in the daily life of a physician. Okay, so uh, when it was getting late, okay, so they kept on preaching, healing people, his disciples came to him and said, it is already very late and this is a lonely place. Send the people away and let them go to the nearby farms and villages in order to buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus said to them, you yourselves give them something to eat. Okay. Did he really expect, what did he expect of his disciples? Why do you think he said that? If you've just been standing next to Jesus for an entire day while he heals people, wouldn't you think he'd have the ability to do something in this situation? Isn't he trying to get them just a little bit to exercise a little trust, a little faith? And of course, they didn't get it. They asked, do you want us to go and spend 200 silver coins on bread in order to feed them? Okay, it wasn't on the radar screen that, that somehow uh, that Jesus could take care of this situation. And of course, you know what happened. He fed them all. And we just read on, it's two chapters later in Mark. It was a short time later when Jesus fed the 4,000. Okay, and so not long afterwards, another large crowd came together. And when the people had nothing left to eat, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I feel sorry for these people because they have been with me for three days and now have nothing to eat. If I send them home without feeding them, they will faint as they go because some of them have come a long way. And hmm, Jesus seems like, uh, uh, has, has no idea here what to do. They're really sad. These people are all so hungry. And now don't you think the disciples would say, well, Jesus, you just fed 5,000 people. So let's do it again. Okay? And his disciples said, where in this desert can anyone find enough food to feed all these people? Uh, so my point in bringing up this story is, um, I think uh, I might be rather irritated at this point with uh, the, the disciples. Just It just not seemed to, to sink in at all. And so Jesus kind of maybe wants to give him a chance. Let's, let's drag out the dialogue a little bit here. Well, how much bread do you have? Jesus asked. I mean, obviously they don't have enough bread. Isn't he wanting them just to say, we have, oh, we have the same number of loaves that you just had when you fed the 5,000. And again, so they just say seven loaves. And they just don't seem to pick up on the obvious. And so Jesus ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, gave thanks to God, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the crowd, and the disciples did so. Um, you know, no uh scathing remarks here to his disciples for their lack of faith. And uh, I admire too that despite here the disciples twice not seeming to get it, that um he kind of graciously involved them in the solution, made them the distributors of the food, kind of got them involved. And so I think a lot of patience um, here in, in many aspects of Jesus' life. So irritability, um, I never see Jesus being um, irritable. Yes, he had some hard words. We'll talk about some hard words. But how do we understand those? And I like that Jesus gave his disciples an opportunity to exercise their faith, even though they failed. And in a positive way, he involved his disciples in the solution. So, you know, you work with people, nurses, schedulers, um, how you treat them is extremely important. And we tend to, I should say it's very easy, we treat people who are above us with a lot of respect and reverence and all of that, and it becomes very easy, and I see many physicians uh, really dumping on the people that are below them. Okay, Those people aren't that important. That scheduler can be replaced, and sometimes people do need to be replaced. But uh, it really says more about a person how they treat people who are um, under them than people that are over them, um, and I'll just say here's a little uh, uh, secret here. But um, you know, when candidates are interviewed for the neurology residency uh, program here, and probably any residency program, um, you know, residents always when they're applicants for a residency program put on the best face and you know a lot of charm, and uh, but it's how that person treats the neurology secretary on the phone. That's a huge red flag if the person trying to schedule the interview is rude with the neurology secretary that that would that would uh, raise some red flags so how do you treat people who are under you okay so again another just a real life example of things that tend to lead to anger and self-destructive thoughts and treatment of others so here's a an encounter I had with a patient uh, some time ago this is a man who had uncontrolled seizures about three to four per month Okay, some question about whether some of these were alcohol-related, but not all of them seemed alcohol-related. So uh, after the first visit with the patient, I told the patient, please take uh, Keppra, which is uh, Leviteracetam, very good seizure medication, twice a day. And if you do, we have a good chance of controlling these seizures. Call me in two to three weeks. Let me know how you're doing. Come back to see me in two months. And the patient was reported to the DMV. Very important that you do that when someone's having seizures. Okay, well, the patient didn't call me back, and he was a no-show for his follow-up visit. So the neurology secretary called, gave him another appointment, and he was a no-show for his next three appointments. So I really had no idea what's going on with the patient until I presented to the emergency room with a seizure and admitted that he'd only taken about five to ten pills of Keppra per month, and, which is really not taking anything. Okay, you've got to take it twice a day, and if uh, you miss even a few pills, you really lose the benefit. Okay, so um, I happened to be on the service at the VA at that time, and so went with the neurology team to the emergency room, had a long talk with the patient, told him again, if you take your seizure medications, make sure you don't drink alcohol. Uh, I think we can have a good chance of controlling these. Made a follow-up visit. Patient was a no-show for the follow-up appointment. And two weeks later, came back to the emergency room, had another seizure, still not taking his medications regularly. And he left uh, against medical advice uh, before he could be seen by neurology. Okay. He finally did make a, a follow-up visit. Still found to be non-compliant. Long talk with the patient. This time he came in with his son, had a long counseling session. Patient was still driving. Somehow, even though I'd mailed a form to the DMV, um, his license wasn't taken away. And so, you know, talked to the patient about that, told him he shouldn't drive, reported him again to the DMV. Okay and next week patient writes a letter of complaint to the hospital medical director dr cole has been completely unable to help me with my seizures and now he has ruined my life by taking away my driver's license and it was a it was about an eight page handwritten letter okay with a lot of other details but that was really the extent of my interaction with the patient so you know these things these things can really uh, eat you up you get upset but i did everything i could in this encounter for the patient and um, but here's is, here's is the frustration. Okay, and how we deal with this is important. This doesn't mean that uh, we're just completely serene and always have a smile on our face face at all time. But uh, how do you deal with these things that come up so often um, in in real life? Okay, let's get back to Jesus now. He dealt with a lot of frustration, and um, I just in the the Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, jesus told his disciples three times very plainly exactly what would happen okay so from that day on jesus began to say plainly to his disciples i must go to jerusalem and suffer much from the elders the chief priests the teachers of the law i will be put to death but three days later i will be raised to life very clear next chapter they came to galilee and jesus said the son of man is about to be handed over to those who will kill him but three days later he'll be raised to life the disciples became very sad. Okay, a third time, we're two chapters on. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, spoke to them privately. As they walked along, listen, he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will make fun of him, whip him, and crucify him. But three days later, he will be raised to life. Okay, now if you were told something three times, plainly, clearly, you were pulled aside, told privately, this is what's going to happen, and, and in such detail, you know, did Jesus have an expectation that his disciples, that it, that it would sink in, that, that they would understand this is exactly uh, what would happen? And of course we come up to the moment um, here, the night before Jesus died, and he, remember, told Peter, you'll deny me before the rooster crows, and he said very plainly, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. So he's he's telling them, making it very clear. Okay, and then he goes out to Gethsemane. Okay, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. Distress and anguish came over him. He said to them, the sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. Stay here and keep watch. He went a little further on, threw himself on the ground, And prayed that if possible, he might not have to go through this time of suffering. Father, he prayed, my father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. And then he returned and he found the three disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Weren't you able to stay awake for even one hour? And he said to them again, keep watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. And uh, this is just kind of what jumped out at me here. I mean... Just, boy, maybe next time we'll talk about Gethsemane and what Jesus was going through and the anguish of that. Um, And his disciples, again, just completely falling apart at this time. And what did you think about his words? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, I I think that's a pretty gracious comment to make to his disciples who uh, would all leave his side just a short time later, who couldn't stay awake and to say, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, that would seem to put the best spin on um, what was going on with them at that time. So he went away once more and prayed, saying the same words. Then he came back to the disciples, found them asleep again. They could not keep their eyes open, and they did not know what to say to him. Okay, when he came back a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and then we know what happened. Um, Again, how Jesus is dealing with people who don't get it, who are just, it's its not sinking in, they're not doing what he's asking them to do, um, you know, it's, it's more what we don't have in here. It's, it's really uh, harsh words that suggest, um, you know, great frustration in Jesus and anger towards his disciples. Of course, you know, it gets worse with uh, Peter. So he first told the woman, woman, I don't even know him. And then he said, man, I am not one of his disciples. And man, I didn't even know what you were talking about. And of course, the rooster crowed. And now here we want to imagine the rooster crowed. And at once, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And this is an amazing verse. The Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. Okay, just try to imagine this, that uh, what Peter has just done after all the warnings, and he and, and Jesus make eye contact so we can each kind of paint, what do we imagine the face of Jesus in that moment? Um, you know, we're not told. But what do you imagine the face of Jesus looked like as he looked at Peter? Okay? A lot of anger? Um, well, what do you see? But we, we have to, I guess, use the whole, all of the gospel narrative to imagine. But I imagine, um, you know, a, a face that showed compassion and sorrow and we know that peter went out um, crying of course we have the resurrection and the angel then gives us command it's amazing how many little details here can be so important now go and tell his disciples including peter that jesus is going ahead of you to galilee you will see him there just as he told you before why do we have the two words here in some translations now go and tell his disciples and tell peter that jesus is going ahead of you to galilee uh, why do you think that's in there yeah wouldn't you think this would uh i mean who really let him down the most i would say other than judas um peter peter gets despite his behavior gets a special little insert there and tell peter including peter and again i think that's that's pretty gracious of god for all that peter had done to still value him still you know doing everything he can Uh, to not have him just toss everything entirely, to come back. Okay, so Jesus is resurrected. And he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had driven out seven demons. She went and told his companions. They were mourning and crying. And when they heard her say that Jesus was alive, they remembered that he three times told them that he would be persecuted and whipped and raised to life. No, no. When they heard her say that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe her. After this, Jesus appeared in a different manner to two of them. Uh, this is the story of the Emmaus Road and Luke, while they were on their way to the country. And those two men returned and told the others, but these would not believe it. Again, the, just the, I just imagine the, the frustration here that they don't get it, they still won't believe. Okay, so it was late that Sunday evening. The disciples were gathered together behind locked doors. Okay, they're still scared to death because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. And then Jesus came and stood among them. Okay, and now you know, after all of this, you know, what are Jesus' first words to his disciples? Peace be with you. Be with you. Does this seem uh, a little bit unusual under, under, the, under the circumstance? Uh, Be interesting if we had to write the story, not knowing exactly what happened. Peace be with you. After all of that, these are his first words. And after saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. His disciples were filled with great joy at seeing the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. But of course, you know that Thomas wasn't there, doubting Thomas. Okay, and so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas said to them, unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Okay, so it it's, goes through the whole thing again, just for Thomas. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came among them and said, once again, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Okay, but again, I find remarkable, you know, Jesus and this whole situation that his words are, um, peace be with you. So if we could summarize here what we said so far, the human tendency is uh, irritability, short temper, when things don't go right, easily frustrated, And tit for tat, and and by that I mean someone confronts us with anger, and the the natural thing is we throw it right back. We're a mirror. We reflect that anger right back to those that are uh, mistreating us. But what we see in the life of Jesus, what God is like, um, supremely patient, forgiving, and uh, this is really the hard one here, returning love in the face of unbelief and lack of trust. Okay, so we want to be like this. And again, if by beholding we become changed, uh, that's why, you know, these, these four books, The Life of Jesus, we want to really pour over those as much as possible, get into the details, what Jesus said, what it meant. And uh, I think as we come to admire that, it's a, it's like a law of gravity. You tend to become like the God you love, worship, and admire. Um, I work at the VA hospital, and, um, you know, there are a lot of problems with, um, Somewhat unique to veteran patients. Homelessness is a big problem in the VA community. And um, um, I just see a lot of veterans who have just experienced horrible things in war and uh, that even decades later just can't get rid of it. Um, uh, I think it was last year I saw a a patient who was um, in a foxhole And somehow his own troops thought that he was the enemy. So they're firing at him. He's just buried down in the foxhole. And someone was running at him with a machine gun. And so he just went up and he shot him. And it ended up being his best friend in his company. And the momentum of the man carried him forward. And he fell on top of my patient in the foxhole, dead. And so he laid there um, for the entire night uh, basically using him as a, as a shield and um, you know in the foxhole he developed this tremor with his right hand the hand that that he shot shot his friend with and uh, here it is i mean the vietnam was a long time ago and we i was asked to do a consult on this patient for hand tremor which he's had since this incident on that day and it was very clear on his uh, neurologic examination that this was uh, what we call a psychogenic tremor uh, it was not parkinson's not essential tremor Uh, This is a a psychiatric manifestation. And when he would get stressed, he would have the hand tremor that would would come out again. Uh, Very, very difficult to to manage something like that when it's been going on for decades. Um, Another patient I saw more recently um, uh, did some atrocious things in Vietnam, some illegal things in Vietnam. And and, uh, I won't go into any details, but he has just been plagued for decades about this. I mean, his conscience the nightmares. Um, he just just is completely unable to deal with uh, some of the atrocities that, that he was involved with. So again, we want to try to use Jesus to somehow, um, you know, so often I, I hear someone telling me a story like that and I feel unprepared. What are the words? What am I going to say to try to meet someone that's telling me this story? Okay, so let's come back to Jesus here and let's Use one story from John, only told in the Gospel of John, um, to, to see how that might meet specific needs. So you know the story about the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery, caught red-handed. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, this is a trap, I mean, this is a very disingenuous on, our, on their part, and if you read the book of Moses, you're supposed to bring the man also, They just brought the woman. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the law of Moses, Uh, commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's kind of an unusual thing. What do you think he was writing on the ground? Just wanted to pass the time? Well, you just read on. Maybe we get some clues here from the rest of the story. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened up and said to them, Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. And when they heard this, they all left one by one. And this is what's really curious. The oldest, the older ones first. And we don't know what Jesus wrote, but I kind of like the thought that, uh, you know, he was writing perhaps some of the sins of these uh, self-righteous men that came bringing the woman. Okay, which is, uh, I think you could say that's kind of a gracious way of dealing with it because, you know, how long do little words in the dust last? You know, all those people walking around, they're gone. So they were seen by the men who were standing there and uh, when they realized that their own life here was opened up before Jesus, um, they left. So the accusers are gone. And when Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there, he straightened up and said to her, where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she answered. Well, then Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin again. And so again, what do we take here from this story? And the the woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Okay, but uh, I find it remarkable here that in this setting, Jesus gets the accusers out of the equation and then jesus would say i do not condemn you either and what i when when someone is telling me stories like the ones i, I just told you um, i would like to tr- somehow persuade now they have all kinds of accusers in their head for the things they've done that god's attitude towards them is not one of condemnation perhaps this is a good story to bring up if, if your patient is is familiar with the bible at all that here in this setting i mean jesus doesn't excuse the behavior Okay, don't do it anymore, but I do not condemn you either. So perhaps a goal is to persuade your patient that the attitude of God in this story applies directly to them. This is how God dealt with someone who had done something horrible. That's God's attitude towards sin. And it's very helpful, at least for me, uh, if your patient is, is familiar with some of the Bible stories, um, let's just go through some characters in the Bible and, you know, other than Jesus, the only two people in the Bible who are significant characters that we don't have a lot of bad things told about them are um, Enoch, that's probably only because there are two verses dedicated to Enoch, and uh, Daniel. So we can just use anyone. Just, let's just talk about the Bible. Uh, what about David? What do you think about how God treated David? What did David do? And of course, your patient, well, yeah, he committed adultery and had the man murdered. And we can go through all kinds of things in the life of David. How did God treat David? He okay, called him a man after his own heart. And you could talk about how gracious God was to David. Uh, what about Solomon? I wrote several books in the Bible, wisest man that ever lived. Uh, what do we know about Solomon? Worship the god Moloch, god of child sacrifice for a period of time. Okay, how did God treat Solomon? Well, he came back and he wrote another book of the Bible. Okay, that's kind of remarkable. Uh, what about uh, King Manasseh? Okay, now it's pretty good extra-biblical authority that King Manasseh, you know, killed so many people that the streets flowed with blood. And what did King Manasseh do to Isaiah? Again, extra-biblical sources. He sawed him in half in a hollow lock. Okay, how did God treat Manasseh? Well, he repented. He came back. Okay, you would think, boy, if you saw Isaiah in half, that's it for you. I mean, you crossed a line. But... It would appear not. Of course, you could talk about the story of Peter. Um, and and sometimes I'll just ask patients, you know, who who do you think is the worst character in the life of Jesus? The worst character. And I visit, most people come up with Judas. Okay, well, how did God treat Judas? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I think the story is more than key texts. The stories are what really allow you to make a compelling case for God's attitude. Um, towards each of us. Thief on the cross, you know, what did he do right? You know, you could just, which laws did he keep? All he did at the end of his life is he put his trust in Jesus and that's it. And Jesus said, that's it, you're in. And of course, what about the mob that crucified Jesus? So, you know, what were Jesus dying words? Father, forgive them. So in the worst characters in the Bible, well, I shouldn't say all of these are the worst characters, but um, what we see again and again is just the way God treated them. The way God treats uh, rascals here in the Bible is is really remarkable. So perhaps that that can have an impact for someone who is plagued in their mind with guilt and condemnation. How did Jesus treat Judas? You know, we read in John that he washed their feet. Okay, did he wash the feet of Judas? Well, I mean, we certainly don't have a story in the Bible that he skipped over Judas as he's washing the feet of his disciples. And again, is that remarkable? Night before he died, knowing that Judas would betray him, He washed his feet. And another little tidbit um, here. Judas leaves the upper room. And uh, this is such a small little detail, but yet I think, you know, we try to build our picture of God. It becomes quite significant. So as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, hurry and do what you must. None of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money bag... How about that? Putting him in charge of the money bag. Some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told him to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Now, I just don't think I could uh, restrain myself if I knew what Judas was going to do. It would be very hard not to make some comment as he left the room, you know, that would really put him on the spot, humiliate him, And instead, it's remarkable, he left the upper room and some of the disciples thought he was leaving for a worthy motive. Give something to the poor, maybe. Okay, again, that's just what God is like. We want to try to be more like that. Um, Maybe just a last uh, issue, which um, can be a real problem. I mean, physicians, it just becomes very easy to gravitate towards arrogance and pride. And uh, I think it starts... You know, rather gradually, often the third-year students, first month, man, so eager, positive, excited about seeing the smallest uh, peripheral neuropathy or whatever it might be, you know, such a great attitude, and it's very easy over time. You're on a service, and oh, what a dumb consult. I mean, don't they know how to deal with whatever problem it might be, which happens to be your specialty? Or a surgeon misses a diagnosis. And here's a line that people like to throw out. Well, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, they don't really know what to do with any problem other than something that can't be fixed surgically. Or people I'm told say about neurologists that it's diagnose and adios. And so anyway, we, sometimes this can be kind of funny, but uh, oftentimes this becomes kind of negative and we put others down. Why do we put others down? Because we want to put ourselves up in the process. And so this can carry over to patients. A patient, you know, you're trying to tell a patient the diagnosis. And the patient says, you know, I'm just, I have a hard time accepting that uh, what you say is true. And again, if there's arrogance, it will come across this way. Look, I went to school a long time. You're just going to have to trust me. Rather than spending that five minutes to work through again, explain the rationale for your diagnosis, rather than just to say, look, I'm the doctor. So arrogance and pride, and I should show this, because I've never actually seen this, but if any of you have seen Dr. House, I guess he kind of exemplifies arrogance and pride. And this is, uh, I think, uh, we've talked about the subject of humility before, um, but it's one of the things that I find most remarkable um, about Jesus, that so unlike any conception of the Messiah, that Jesus, if one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. one of you wants to be first, you must be the slave of the others. And if he just left it at that, fine, but that he would go on and say, like me, like the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to redeem many people. And Jesus said this so many times, that, that his kingdom, it's an upside down kingdom. Okay, the top is at the bottom serving, and that's the way I am. I'm not just telling you to be that way. That's the way I am. Okay, and then we even have his claim, which we can believe to be true based on his life. I am meek and humble of heart okay and if we believe jesus words that if you've seen me you've seen the father that we need to put humility into the character of the almighty one all right so um, anyway i'll just give a couple representative stories here of the disciples you know they're still of the mentality they want to be on the top it kind of goes along with pride and arrogance. This kind of, uh, survival of the fittest mechanism. We're going to put others down so we feel better about ourselves. So the disciples, uh, there came to Capernaum after going indoors. Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? Okay. Of course he knew, but they would not answer him because on the road they'd been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Okay. It's, it's the same kind of a mindset. I, I, Be interesting to actually hear the conversation out how they would argue for one being greater than the other. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. Okay, this is is how it's told in Mark, this is how it's told in Luke. So he took a child, stood him by his side, and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me also welcomes the one who sent me. For the one who is least among you all is the greatest. And so again, it's kind of like his words that I'll be crucified, that I'll be resurrected. Uh, he's telling them this again and again and again, and it doesn't sink in. And he tried to tell them in a different way. The kings of the pagans have power over their people, and the rulers claim the title friends of the people. Okay, So it's a power structure. That's the way our world operates. We have people that are up and people that are down. But notice, in God's kingdom, this is not the way it is with you. Rather, the greatest one among you must be like the youngest. The leader must be like The servant okay so the way to the top is to the bottom to service and uh, what's really remarkable is the disciples if you read luke and john together uh, on their way to the upper room what are they arguing about who's going to be the greatest okay the night before jesus died and so this context and, and i know i've read this to you before but it's for me just one of the most remarkable stories in the life of jesus that the argue the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest And in that context, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he'd come from God, was going to God. So, and as as Graham Maxwell has said, if ever there was a time to call she-bears, to peek their head in the window, and, uh, you know, like in the story of Elisha. I mean, how do you break in when people are arguing who is going to be the greatest? And he has complete power. Okay, and of course, what he did is he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist. Then he poured some water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. I mean, such a humble task. Again, a vivid illustration that your whole perception of the kingdom is completely backwards. Okay, and so Jesus washed their feet. And then he said, do you understand what I've just done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and it's right you do so because that is what I am. I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You then should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you so that you will do just what I have done for you. And now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. The important truth here is not that we have a, a service every once in a while to wash feet. The truth is God is like this and that's what We should be like and how happy we'll be if we'll put it into practice so if we maybe put this in a real life setting you know we it's hard to identify this story because we no longer wash feet before a meal so maybe this is a crazy parallel but let's try this so you're on a service on a medical team and let's just say it happens to be a team where you know there's a lot of pride arrogance putting everyone else down and uh, maybe you're working with an attending physician that you really admire and respect and that physician sees the attitude going on and keeps suggesting to the team uh, you know what let's let's have a different attitude let's be more service oriented let's not put other people down uh, let's not talk badly about our patients and other services and it's just not sinking in okay and so finally one day overhears there's another conversation uh, again of the same manner and uh so the the physician leaves the room, and everyone wonders, well, where's he going? Okay, so you follow him, and you go out to the parking lot, and no one can understand why 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 is he going out to the parking lot? And then he gets a bucket of water, and he washes your car. Is that a good parallel? And detail, too. He gets the chrome, wheels, everything, goes around to each resident, each medical student. Now, this is your attending. This is the one with all the power, and he washes your car. I mean, is that a fair illustration, trying to make a point in a story Uh, Look, I'm this way, and that is the way that that you should be. So again, human nature attempts to better oneself at the expense of others. And along with that is power, desire for honor, pride, selfishness. Um, Our world is built on a survival of the fittest mechanism, where we strive our whole life to get to the top and to push others down, and we desire to be served. God's nature, God's kingdom, uh, maybe this is a description of humility, where we place the good of others over that of self. And the goal is to serve, not to be served. Okay, now if I could just uh, mention here in the last uh, in the last few minutes, um, because certainly Jesus had some harsh words. I mean, he he was, uh, you know, washing feet is not weak. That's That takes a lot of power. And so the one story that really comes up, of course, is when Jesus cleansed the temple. So you know the story, he went into the temple, turned over everything, uh, we're late on time so I'll, I'll just skip over this, but he said it's, it's written in the scriptures that God said my temple will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a hideout for thieves, okay, and everyone fled. But here's what I find remarkable, okay, we're not skipping any words here, that the blind and the crippled came to him in the temple and he healed them. The chief priests and teachers of the law became angry when they saw the wonderful things he was doing and the children shouting in the temple. Now, I can just guarantee you, having had uh, three children, that if we're in a house or somewhere and an argument breaks out or a man raises his voice, and certainly if a man were to kick over a chair, uh, my kids would be the first ones out of the room. You know, they'd be, get somewhere else. And so, yes, there's a time, if we were to just go into this, the, the priests were abusing the people. This is an abusive situation something had to be done and jesus did something but if you're going to get angry let me just put this little charge on you get angry in a way that the blind and the crippled and the children come to you can you get angry in that way where somehow by the way you're acting you actually draw the helpless and the children to you Um, so as, as some have said when jesus took his whip he hit the furniture not the people and um, so somehow we, we need to, as we imagine this story, see that the guilty people were fleeing and the helpless and the children came to Jesus, even as he's drawing out the many changers.